Good morning, everyone, or good evening, or guten tag, or any of a thousand other languages around this rotating globe that we all happen to kind of occupy together, with an emphasis on the word together. So together tonight, we're going to take another journey on the other side of midnight, that, that really amazing time between dusk and dawn where more and more we're thinking the most outrageous things, and they're coming true. I mean, there was a time when Art and I used to talk about this stuff, and it was very clear from my first conversations that he was, how should I say, um, reserved would be one way to put it, but really an agnostic. I mean, if Long John Nebel was an outright cynic and just did the shows on these topics because it was the shows people wanted to hear – Art was more discerning. Art believed some things. He followed data on some things, and he completely ignored, you know, a lot of other things. So he had he had discernment, and that was an era where you really needed discernment because the signs of the unreal, the unusual, the anomaly, the otherworldly, multi-dimensional shifting of realities was very veiled, even just a few years ago. Now, you know, it's sitting here over the head. It's so incredibly overt that everybody is commenting. Everybody is noticing that this time, as we went into it some great length on last night's show, this time is, damn it, unique. It's not normal. It's not the way life has ever been for all those of us now alive. And it is heading in directions that uh, would have been impossible to even contemplate on the other side of midnight, um, even a few years ago. But we're in it. We're in the middle of it. So um, tonight we're going to, you know, bend the conversation of last night back on itself and look to the past, the ancient, ancient past, and some reasons why certain things might be going on now that you're going to be surprised to find out may have roots a long, long time ago. And that will become clear as we go through the morning. I want to start with some news. Um, today was the day that uh, John McCain, uh, war hero, veteran, uh, 60 years of service to his nation, either in the military or in the Congress or in the Senate, was laid to rest at the Naval Academy in Annapolis outside of Washington, D.C. Spent many, many delightful hours in Annapolis visiting friends and actually uh, going uh, uh, boating on that river, the, the Seine or Siena River, that the, the, the hill where he's buried will we'll look out over. And I'm going to have some more to say about John McCain and this whole thing about uh, the week-long ceremony um, toward the end of this update. Let me move on to number two. A number of people sent me this uh, Microwave weapons could be prime suspect in uh, ills of U.S. embassy workers. Remember several months ago we had some stories and we had John Francis on talking about the bizarre events surrounding the uh, U.S. members of the uh, U.S. delegation in, in, in Havana at the uh, American embassy and some adjoining Canadian uh, members of their embassy as well, and it didn't only take place at the embassy, it took place in a couple of hotels, and it sounded like weird ultrasonic weapons or sounds or something. Well, if you read item number two in Radio with Pictures, remember, go to tonight's uh, homepage, the other side of midnight.com. Click on that, that will take you to the show. 
click on the graphic for tonight's show, which is about Stonehenge. And Maria Wheatley is my guest. That will take you to the guest page. That's Radio with Pictures. Scroll down to my items. Item number two is this uh, New York Times story by William Broad. By the way, when William Broad speaks, everybody needs to listen because Broad has been on this energy weapons technology from the beginning of Reagan Star Wars program. So when Broad talks on this, you should listen and pay attention. They're now coming to the consensus in these scientists who've been trying to figure this, this weirdness out that instead of sonic weapons, whatever was used was probably, is probably a microwave weapon. But I have a feeling that they're on their way to beginning to realize that the torsion field itself can be weaponized. And that if you play around with things like mass and inertia at a field level, you will get the concussive effects that the um, workers, there's kind of a sick joke going around if you read the article, that among the people that have been struck by this, both in Cuba and now in China, remember some some cases showed up recently in China, uh, same same uh, symptomology. They're, they're, the, the, the folks that experience this, both men and women, are now part of a very exclusive club. They call themselves the Immaculate Concussion, meaning you don't see the fingerprints, you don't see how it was done. So this is causing real brain damage. Now, the question, of course, is, is this part of, again, the discussion we had last night, which is that there is something so big, so terrible, so awful, so mind-bogglingly, world-shatteringly changing that's going on behind the scenes, that all of what we're seeing vis-a-vis Trump and the special you know, uh, counsel and the um, Russians and Kim and all of that, and the fact that every time there's a public event, you know, Trump says specifically, deliberately the wrong thing. All of that is just noise, just manufactured, elegantly mass produced P.T. Barnum type noise to keep us from paying attention to the real stuff, whatever the real event or events coming are. And one of the harbingers could be this bizarre series of tests of some kind of weaponry that um, – appeared to strike our, our people at the uh, American embassy there in Havana. The third item on my list, um, remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about this bipartisan bill that was making its way through the House and Senate, gathering supporters, gathering you know people that really want to see it happen? Well, if you look at the story there, um, someone has put the kibosh on all this just two months before the election. And you got, remember, a few weeks ago you had five – heads of the American security agencies from the uh, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency to the CIA to the Director of National Intelligence himself, all of them saying, almost with one voice, at the White House, that we were under threat by the Russians and other state actors for computerized meddling in the coming midterm elections. And then bills have popped up to try to send money to the states to prepare and those have been killed. And this bill, which had the um, singularity of being a bipartisan effort of legislation, and it really was. I mean, it wasn't just wallpaper. It was really both sides. Um, uh, Lankford, I think, introduced it as a Republican from Oklahoma. And uh, I forget who this, the senator was from the Democratic side. Anyway, it really started out, and now it's on, on life support, and the White House came down very heavy against it. And we're two months from the election, and wouldn't it make you think 
maybe, maybe someone knows, regardless of the propaganda, that the Russians, nor anybody else, is going to do any serious meddling with the coming elections. In other words, the actions speak louder than the words, and the actions say that nobody who should be is very bothered, and they're arguing about commas and ises and, you know, incredible minutiae as the inexorable date of the election gets closer and closer and closer. And these folks, of course, need need um, warning. And I mean, the, the, the legislation is so basic. It basically will give states money to put in a backup paper ballot system. I mean, what could be simpler? You just, you know, buy a few forests and bingo, there you got enough paper to put, make sure that voters have a backup paper trail if there are contests during any specific election. Such common sense. And it's been kiboshed. It's been sabotaged. So the common sense bill, which says basically, you know, you all get together and you get intelligence information and you get to track who the bad guys are and you back it up with all paper ballots. That, I mean, common sense has gone out the window. Not only has comedy talking across the aisle, which is today's current cliche. Anyway, uh, we could go on for, for days on that, and I don't want to take a lot of Maria's time. So final item, number four. Um, I was thinking a lot about what Robert and Georgia were talking about last night, about this this contretemps between the deep state and the Trump people, the administration, is really the tip of a perennial long, long-term war between factions within and without the deep state. And it's just getting more and more blatant, more and more obvious. And we also pointed out that there were some incredible inconsistencies in all of this. For instance, while doing publicly really dumb, stupid things to, um, what's the word they used to have in, uh, in Detroit, to dis McCain, the president privately sanctioned the authorization of one of his aircraft because the White House, you know, Secret Service maintains this fleet vis-a-vis the Air Force of, of aircraft painted in, you know, JFK colors of, you know, the spirit of, of uh, St. Louis, et cetera. One of those airplanes was dispatched to Phoenix to bring John McCain from there back to the dome of the U.S. Capitol, to lie in state, to be accorded all the honors that former presidents have been accorded, like JFK. In fact, Robert Morningstar wrote a very interesting editorial comparing the -the over-the-top, in his perspective, veneration of McCain to the state funeral of JFK and, you know, similar pageants of incredible national importance. And it, it just, you know, seemed to me that There may be deeper roots. So I started thinking, what was John McCain's life? It was Navy. Navy. The Navy was founded, among other things, by a guy named John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones was an out-and-out, avowed, overt Mason. Part of the founding fathers of the United States, who were mostly Masons. Not the kind of Masonry we have today, but the original. So when Georgia and Robert were talking about this this war between levels, degrees, no, those are the wrong terms, flavors up. Think of it as you know, like up, down, and sideways corks, that kind of thing. Flavors of masonry kind of reminds me of the schism between uh, you know the Sunnis and the Shiites in Islam. 
you have believers, but you have believers believing in different things. And each one believes their different thing is the original right thing, and the other guys are the heretics. I mean, is it that extreme? Are we really talking? Anyway, so I started thinking Navy, and then I started thinking Trump and his Space Force. Is it really a space Navy? Because the Navy is the oldest, most constitutional, sorry, Army, masonically overtly based service, branch of service in the United States defense panoply, the Navy. My dad was in the Navy. So, you know, a lot of reminiscences. He was in World War II. He fought in the, in the Pacific, and he would never talk about it. And later, you know, my mother and I learned some really awful things happened during those years. The guys who go through this, they never really want to talk. So tonight, in honor of McCain and my father and all those people who have served not in the Navy and not in the Air Force, but in all the branches that have protected freedom and liberty and this incredible, unique experiment. The Navy Hymn. We'll be back. I hope we're back. That was a sharp cutoff in the uh, hmm, lightning. Lots of lightning going on here tonight in the land of enchantment. So without further ado, let me get to my guest of the evening because oddly enough, there is a segue. Maria is a second generation dowser who was taught by the European master dowsers, her late father and Chio and Chio and Chinese geomants. Maria is a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles, such as Stonehenge. She's an accomplished author of books on sacred sites and dowsing, and in 2015, she made a major discovery 
In the Neolithic period, there was a royal priesthood of long-skulled, that's elongated people, that made Stonehenge their spiritual capital. This is from Standard Archaeology. Across Europe and the British Isles, this enigmatic, long-lost civilization designed elongated-shaped monuments to reflect their skull shape. During the early Bronze Age, the long-skulled people were murdered by round-skulled people who designed round stone circles and created round burrows, barrows, actually is the term, for the departed, reflecting, again, the shape of their skulls. This is, of course, a model. We don't have text that says this yet, but this is the inferences from the data. Maria tracked down the long, elongated skull of the High Queen of Stonehenge and many others to reveal the secret history of Stonehenge. And I think she's going to be talking a bit about that tonight and some of the more recent developments. Maria studied Neolithic Britain and the Bronze Age prehistory at Bath and Oxford University. And alongside other professionals, she combines her knowledge of archaeology and earth energies with state-of-the-art equipment to detect and interpret the hidden frequencies that Earth is emitting. She's an expert on local and analyzing, on locating, I'm sorry, and analyzing Earth energies at sacred sites across Europe. So without further ado, Maria, this is your rest of your life. No, I'm sorry. Welcome to the other side of the night. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, as my grandmother used to say, it's great being had. Okay, moving on. Uh, where should we dive in? There's been a really remarkable summer. In fact, that's one of the reasons I was thinking of you archaeologically in Britain, because of a combination of temperature and drought. There's a whole bunch of fields where the crops are revealing to you know drones and overhead flights all kinds of ancient British archaeology still buried underground that's like emerging from the mists of time. Talk a bit to that. That's right. They're called parch marks. And you're right. When there's been a drought, the remains of past structures, and that could be a stone circle, it could be a temple complex, they start to make the soil go a slightly different colour. So if you are overhead, like you said, with a drone or flying overhead, you can see the ghostly remains of that which was. So that gives uh, archaeologists a really good indication of where to do geophysics for example, or where to do an excavation. And there has been numerous monuments found in Ireland as well and, and across the British Isles. It's been a great summer. And I think if archaeologists do some excavations, uh, that we'll be understanding far more about our ancient past. Well, it seems as I'm reading, you know, newspaper copy and all that kind of stuff that comes from, from Europe, that there's almost a new archaeological discovery announced every 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 few days, and a lot of them in Britain, having to do with maybe Middle Ages stuff, but the more interesting ones having to do with this time period, which is thousands of years ago, is talk about the role of English heritage in managing and kind of keeping track of people interested in this really ancient archaeology. Well, in English heritage do employ people to manage sites such as Stonehenge, for example, is, is the most classic example. And it's 
really security people that are looking around who visits who visits the stone how long you've got and literally sometimes uh, following you around the ancient sites it's it's security and a lot of them come from a military background uh, or even a nightclub background whoa, 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 uh, you, you, you mean they're bouncers exactly <laughs> english heritage is hiring ex-bouncers to police the tourists at stonehenge yes that's bizarre. I know. I know. And it is quite sad, actually, because Stonehenge is an experience. It's oh, a yeah. Con it's a conscious, moving experience. So that is being colored, literally, by the security in their bright fluorescent coats, watching over you, is, is ruining a lot of people's sometimes once-in-a-lifetime experience mm. of going into a sacred site to feel the energies and to experience something extraordinary. I mean, it's like, and we talked a bit about this before, but it's like, do these guys and gals, because they're women, because when Rob and I were there measuring with the Akatron, I'll get to that in a minute, I was surprised that the aggressive security police, the Stasi, whatever, were women. <laughs> Yep, uh, you have both uh, sexes employed, uh, that is for sure. And uh, some of them are quite long-standing. So, I, for example, I know some of the faces of security on the gates uh, uh, and inside the monument as well. And some can be very, very aggressive. Well, it's so funny because we got there very late and that was our fault because, you know, driving on British roads and we had a, we had a British guide. We had a very, very dear friend drive us all over Britain to do the Accutron measurements of the sacred sites that I wanted to cram in after I'd been invited up to uh, Leeds to, to speak at a conference. So we were kind of doing double duty and we got to Stonehenge very late and it was raining. It was kind of like drizzly, but it was most important at sunset because I wanted to measure at sunset. Because these monuments change, as you know, their energy pattern depending upon the time of day. And sunset and sunrise are really important. So I wanted to measure at sunset. So we get there, and the equipment I have is basically an Accutron on a little plastic case and a laptop. You know, So it's not like I'm you know, carrying a bazooka or in any way, shape, or form look threatening. As soon as I pulled out the equipment and put it together – and began to walk one of those macadam paths out to get near the center of the stones, two of these security ex-bouncerettes started following us. And I stopped at about a 90-degree uh, point because you can't go across the rope. You can't literally lift up the rope and go across the grass to the center of the monument. They won't let you do that. So I had to measure from the path. And so I kind of knelt down, you know, looking at the laptop, trying to shield it from the rain, which is getting serious rain now coming down. And I can see on the screen that I'm getting wonderful, amazing readings. So I go like 20 minutes and they're standing around looking and not talking. And Robin, I don't think was there. I think she took the umbrella, went back to the uh, gift shop or something because I looked around. She wasn't there. And I end the readings and I get up and I, I make a move to lift up the rope and move toward the center of the circle to do companion readings. Boy, were they on me just like that. And they mm -hmm. were nice. They weren't threatening. But, you know, it was like, but I can't walk 20 feet. And, you know, they saw what I was doing. And at some point, I think one of them even asked me what I was doing. And I explained what I was doing. So the only thing I could do was to walk 
a quarter way around the circle outside the inner sanctum of Stonehenge over to where the heel stone is. And I repeated the same measurements there for some period of time. And the rain stopped, and actually we got one of those weird, interesting sunsets where it really kind of limbs light along the horizon. And Robin reappeared, and there's a photo rest, you know, standing there smiling. And the readings were totally, 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 totally different than I'd gotten earlier, 90 degrees to the, what would it have been, the northeast? Around Stone, you know, quarter way around the, uh, the, the huge circle. And it was a because what it was showing me is that there is something at Stonehenge resonating, changing the inertia of mass, of vibrating mass, a tuning fork that can be read out on a computer. And it's beamed, it's directional, it's not an omni radiation, it's a beamed cone searchlight kind of uh, radiation in the torsion field. And it only occurs at 90 degrees to the uh, axis line of the heelstone to the center. So even though Herring's Heritage was anything but English or helpful, I got readings anyway that are really mind-blowing. Because I now know that Stonehenge, to Western scientific measurements, is radiating a field that's vibrating, changing force levels at the inertial level of mass and matter and gravity. That little old circle of stones. Just just stones just put up because they look pretty. <laughs> well, I mean that's that's really uh really interesting and, and fascinating. But the, the the sad fact about Stonehenge and security is, you know, the summer solstice, it's a free for all because uh, English heritage allow everyone and anyone to go in there. You can touch the stones, you could be disrespectful to the stones. It's mm. complete complete and utter chaos at the most important time of Stonehenge. That almost sounds deliberate, like they're trying to screw up the force. That's that's it in a nutshell. So exactly. that no so. coherent linking of consciousness with the stones to do what they were designed to do with that key alignment, that key geometry of the year. Do they just throw a whole bunch of noise and no focus groups could possibly maintain coherence in that environment? Exactly so. So I think that is a, a deliberate plan. And again, at uh, the winter solstice, they do exactly the same thing. But a, a serious researcher like yourself or somebody that wants to just have quiet time by one of the stones can't do that with uh, security. Apart, That's why, like you say, they're trying to block the conscious level and the raising of consciousness at Stonehenge at its most critical point in the year. Hmm. You know that you just gave me an incredibly interesting thought. This is really. I mean, let me just in, in real time. Last night we were discussing about basically the metaphysics of Donald Trump, our very, 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 very outside the box president. And if mm -hmm. you stand back and look, if this really is a critical nodal time in the physics where focused attention would create realities and changes on the other side of the node that would be. Imprinted for the next, well, 26,000 years if we're looking at the processional cycle as this physical cycle. What if Donald Trump and his whole antics is all designed to throw in such chaos and such noise into the system that coherent consciousness to try to shape the field and to shape the future 
cannot work. It's a free-for-all. It's total free will choice because nobody can modulate the whole system and keep it going until it breaks down because of the noise. Yes, I think that's a deliberate ploy for uh, because you know the the energies and you've just described that you picked up on a lot of energies. Okay, well, uh, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. We must take a break here, okay? And I'll explain what we're doing when we return on the other side of midnight with my guest this morning, Maria Wheatley. We shall come back. Design for peace. You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars, or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins. If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell, automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members, 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me, uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies Room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, 
here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5. Literally, the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now... Back to the show. dulcet strains of uh, an album, a very favorite album that my dad used to play over and over and over again. Remember LPs, large platters, 45, 78 RPM and all that. Anyway, this is Victory at Sea. And he was in the Pacific and it's very evocative. So in honor of all our servicemen and women tonight, Victory at Sea, as some of our bumpers, we shall return. And so, Maria, I interrupted your recitation about energies, which I know exists because I measured them. What is it about the Stonehenge energies that appear to be, I could say, what, unique? Yes, I mean, it is, uh, to start with, I mean, Stonehenge is on an astronomical point that doesn't happen anywhere else in the British Isles. And that point is where the summer solstice sunrise uh, in round about June the 21st is at a right angle to where the moon's most major moon set and its northerly climbs sets. So it creates this kind of like right angle. So mm. it's, it represents the balance of the, the solar and the lunar, you know, one's inner energies as well as the outer so that's the first point. It's on a critical astronomical right angle that doesn't happen anywhere else in the British Isles. And on top of that, you have some very powerful uh, lays. But we were mentioning earlier. Wait, 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 wait. You just mentioned a word. We got to define what's a lay. I don't think it's a Hawaiian reef. <laughs> Not according to the founding father of Lays, uh, who's called Alfred Watkins. And in about the 1930s, he discovered, uh, rediscovered, if you will, that ancient sites were lined upon straight lines in the English landscape. And he defined that when you have five or more sites in a straight line, they're on a so-called lay. And some lays can be astronomically aligned to face particular celestial events, like the summer solstice. 
And then you have other lays that are topographical that may not have an alignment to a celestial event. And some lays have energies entwine in them, which are male and female. And they're called earth currents that can entwine lays, and they're very powerful. And at Stonehenge, the, you have some very powerful global lays that go right the way around the planet and have Stonehenge at its focal point. Mm. That's really astonishing. Now, how have these been measured? Uh, with, with sensitives, people like yourself, or with actual, you know, hardwired electronic instruments? We have measured them with some uh, instruments for electromagnetic uh, energy emissions, and you can use uh, dowsing, and some people really do sense them. But they have also been documented in our ancient past through the Druids. And the Druids had an oral tradition. They didn't actually write anything down, but they always said, uh, according to uh, old manuscripts that were written way after the Druids had spoken about them, that there was 12 mighty lines that uh, encircled the globe, one of which went through Stonehenge. So the uh, Stonehenge is the focal point, not just as, as that astronomical right angle, but for a global lay system to emerge. Hmm. So then the monk was measuring the location of these sacred monuments on this lay system because the monuments he talked about, it was obvious that they were there to energize or be energized in terms of this global we, – we keep calling it a grid, but it's much more complex than a grid. It's not like a latitude-longitude grid. It's got additional filigree. Yes, and I think the, the, the times and the points of the year affect lays uh, very, very strongly as well. I mean, in the ancient Celtic tradition, the solar year is divided into eight critical points, and you have the equinoxes and the solstices. And apart from that, you have four, four other points as well, which are the 1st of February, which is called Imbolc, the 1st of August, Lammas, the 1st of May, Beltane, and the 1st of November, Samhain, which is the start of the Celtic year. And monument after monument, when you start looking across the British Isles, are aligned to these eight points of the year. So those four sacred points and the equinoxes and the winter solstice. And that's when the not just the earth energies, but the lays, uh, the ley lines, they seem to become highly active at these critical points of the year. And that's why the, the ancients aligned, aligned them. If you go to Ireland, for example, there's a wonderful uh, ancient site. It's a Neolithic site. And if we use orthodox dating, that goes back about 5,000 years. It's a huge Khan, which they say is for burial, but it's clear that it's a temple space that has chambers inside a very large mound, and that's aligned to face the Imbolc and the Samhain sunrise, for example. Hmm. And that's, that's on the hill of Tara in Ireland. So what is the, is the period that begins like November, 1st of November? That's Samhain. Okay. And that's, that corresponds to the, the, the Christianized festival of Halloween. And to the ancient Celts, that was a time when uh, yes. you could commune uh, with your ancestors. The doorway to the other side is thin. Yeah. The veil is thin. Now, now you know what's going to happen? Two things are going to happen in that same time period. One critical to our you know, body politic and maybe the world, the election, the midterm election. The other thing is for some reason the same time frame. 
the president has chosen to go to Ireland that week. Hmm. When when the veil is thin. I mean, last night we went and there's a lot of evidence that he's working on Masonic principles, that there's some very high-level Masonic magic going on here with left-hand, right-hand stuff. He's going to Ireland when the doorway is open. That's too cool. I know. I, I would suspect strongly then he would go to the sites that were aligned to the uh, sunrise or the sunset. And uh, I, I think we might be seeing pictures of him on the uh, Hill of Tara around that time. Mm. A very famous name in American history. Gone to the wind, Tara, Tara. Okay, so let's go back to, to Stonehenge and talk about this guy, Roy Dutton who apparently was a British aerospace engineer, squeaky clean, you know, straight-laced, mainstream, all that. And he made a rather remarkable discovery. Talk about Roy and what he found. That's right. Uh, Roy Dutton has recently passed over, sadly, but he was a, a brilliant mind. Yes, he worked for British Aerospace. And what he did, he just started to use their computers, actually, to log in a lot oh. of you. Yeah, to log in a lot of UFO activity around the, the southern part of England. And he noticed that the. No, wait, hang on, hang on. What was his source data? Where did he get the latitude, longitude, and sightings and all that? Yeah, from, from eyewitnesses. <clears throat> so did he personally go in the field or was it written up and com compiled somewhere? He, he, he did a lot of data uh, on this. Uh, people would, you know, uh, back in the day, I mean, this was some time ago, you know, would call him on the telephone, you know, write oh, okay. letters, that sort of thing and say that okay, they Okay, so he was kind of like, what's his name in the northeast of your, northwest of the United States, the UFO clearinghouse or something? Yeah, uh, yeah, t t yes, he was. He was gathering the data, and then he put the data through the uh, the computer. Then, because that was a time when you know not everybody had uh, access to to a computer, and he realised that there was two main corridors. One was going east and west across uh, southern England, and another was going north south. Now, and wait, this, is this was based on observed flight patterns and yeah. witnesses on the ground. Yeah. So they basically could nail it down that narrowly that it was only between like a highway in the sky and not much beyond that kind of thing. That's yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. And that these these sightings would prevail in these. He called them corridors huh. of activity. So you have these two main corridors, east, west, north, south. And, and where did they meet? Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Bingo. And uh, they met at uh, Stonehenge. So he thought that was a big focal point. And, the, well, and duh, you know, he's a bright guy. <laughs> oh, my God. So you have a highway in the sky with a crossing point right above the lat long of Stonehenge on the ground. Yes. Wow. Yes, and I noticed when, because uh, I, I met Roy and uh, respect his work, and I noticed that the north-south corridor, as he called it, of UFO activity, uh, corresponded very closely to uh, a major ley line that goes north and south through Stonehenge. Hmm. So it's kind of like they're riding a beam? That's how he described it. They would be and they would be using these corridors to I mean, they would go other places as well. But right. these seem to be like the uh, UFO highways with focusing on oh, Stonehenge. Highway in the sky. 
highway in the sky. Oh. <laughs> I know it's quite it's quite extraordinary how uh, how he came to that. But if we look at other ancient sites and the placement of crop circles, for example, on that north south lay, then all of the major henges in the United Kingdom are focused around that line. For example, if you and when you say hinge, we're talking about these stone circles made out of lots of blocks that are arranged up and down that line as ancient, ancient temples. Exactly. And if, if you went, say, 200 miles north of Stonehenge, you come to a, a site which is called the Stonehenge of the North. It's called Arbelow. And Arbelow Stone Circle is uh, on and very close to that line. And even other monuments like Thornborough Henges, that's mm. a, a very ancient site that a lot of people think uh, represents Orion because there's three large henges that align to the the, 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 the stars of Orion, for example, and right. the, the opening aligns to Sirius rising are all on that major lay of which the mm. uh, it's, a, it's a also a UFO highway. Wow. See, what I'm struck by is uh, our previous president, Obama, was seen very, very visibly at two stunningly important ancient sacred sites. Remember, just after he took the, the, the presidency, he went to Egypt and spent a whole afternoon with his whole inner staff, with Zahi, prowling around in the tombs and the temples, standing and posing in front of the Sphinx and, you know, going up to the great... In other words, he really made a big deal about Giza. About the, and then he went into Cairo and gave a speech. Then years later... He shows up at Stonehenge and they shoo all, everybody all, and he gets like to spend a half hour or so just wandering in shirt sleeves around Stonehenge in, I think it was, you know, like middle of summer, August, that kind of thing. I've got, I've got the dated image somewhere. But now you've got this president who is not exactly an outdoor guy, his biggest outdoor thing is golf. He's going to Ireland in November to play golf? I don't think so. The North Sea is very, very vigorous that time of year. And in other words, it's the worst possible time of year to go for anything resembling good weather. So why is he going? And why is he going then? And does anybody think to follow him to one of these ancient monuments like Obama, his predecessor, made it a big deal of visiting ancient sacred sites? Well, this is why uh, my hunch is, like I said earlier, he will be going to Tara because you have this huge phallic stone, uh, mm -hmm. phallic shaped stone on, okay. on Tara, uh, where all the past Irish kings uh, were crowned. So it's a, it's a very kind of royalty power place to do with rulership. Hmm. Wouldn't it be great if you could actually put a tail on him and see if that's where he goes? We should do. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I understood this morning, I saw some news item that the Irish are not happy that he's coming to visit. So remember what happened when he went to visit England? He was so unpopular, they kept him outside of London. They kept him playing golf on one of his own, own you know, and actually he went to Scotland before he came back to England to meet with uh, Prime Minister May. The more he can't be in public because of the negative reaction – the more his hands are free to do whatever he wants to in private, including visiting Tara. Yes, yes. Uh, he's that not would very, be interesting. 
Mm. Okay, so back to Roy Dutton. Yes, so the, uh, he calculated these major UFO corridors and uh, at Stonehenge at the crossing point of the the two two lines, and uh, and he felt that the main attraction could have been the energy emissions coming you know, I from just, Stonehenge. Uh, hang on, hang on. I, just, I just had this stunning idea. I was just going to say, I'm Roy. I'm glad you're ahead of us. What if what I measured in the torsion field was kind of like a beacon, an old-fashioned VOR aircraft beacon? to basically mark a latitude and longitude where these two highways in the sky cross and you know you're on target to get where you're wanting to go if you cross the Stonehenge Beacon and they can pick it up because it's not EM, it's not radio, it's something much more fundamental. Yes, I mean, uh, I agree. I think, you know, that uh, was definitely the uh, focal point for these uh, crafts that were going over. And even, you know, they're, they're still think about still Think seen. about what, what's the hallmark of those VOR beacons at, at norm, ordinary airports? They're not omnis. They're directional. So, you know, when you're on a glide path or a glide slope or whatever, the torsion beam I measured at Stonehenge was directional. This is cool. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's joining dots, isn't it? And it's trying to yep. understand the uh, these complexes. Mm -hmm. And you never heard about my measurements until I brought them up. That's right. Wow. That, so that, I've got really objective proof that these things do stuff. They're solid state energizers of the force. They're resonating with the field. They're amplifying it. They're 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 shaping it. They're changing it. You know the directionality. But again, what's the big picture? Why? Why is this energy important to so-called primitive humans? Well, when we have a look at even how, you know, these stones are arranged at Stonehenge, you said uh, earlier that, you know, your readings uh, are better or more uh, focused around about the time of sunrise and sunset. Mm -hmm. At all ancient sites, you will get that incorporated you will get a stone set in that is set to the sunrise and sunset. And Stonehenge has has both. It has the, the sunrise uh, pointing towards the heel stone that you mentioned. And the major uh, setting is actually to the midwinter sunset, which sets right in the, the center of the axis line. If you were looking from the center, you'd see it set in between the two large stones known as the greater trilithon. So it's also kind of saying that these are the focal points within the site itself. And I feel when we Absolutely. kind of... And I feel when we kind of have have a look at this, uh, the the Earth energies round about the time of the the sunrises and the sunsets, they also become stronger. Uh, we've we've done measurements of these at uh, Averyhenge, not at Stonehenge itself, but uh, further down the road, about 17 miles away, you have another site called Avery, which I'm sure I know you have visited actually, mm -hmm. uh, Richard. Well, it's just it's just north of. Uh of uh, Stonehenge it's yeah, on that line. Yeah, it's, it's about 17 uh, miles away. They're, they're quite close, these two complexes. And uh, so we have all of these ingredients, basically. By, by the way, I, I, let me interrupt again and make one clarification. Someone sent me a note that, you know, we I talked about our ancestors' primitives. No, that was the perspective of the mainstream academic community. And it goes back to my work with Alexander Marshak, who had found a piece of bone 
with some, you know, lines on it from the upper Paleolithic, 30-some thousand years old. And he had an incredible devil of a time selling the idea that these were conscious tool-making marks for astronomical and calendrical purposes by an ancient Cro-Magnon 30-some thousand years ago. So what I was just quoting was not my perspective or yours. It's mainstream academia, which basically thinks of these guys as dumb, stoop-browed, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, I mean – Really recently. Yeah, I mean the, the the prehistoric people were, you know, master astronomers, physicists, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and able to detect these types of energies within a yeah. landscape. It's as simple as that. And you know, the the archaeologists have got the wrong model. Now, at Stonehenge as well. When we look to the the earlier phases, they are over seven thousand to ten thousand years old in what's called the Mesolithic period. And and now there's been uh, uh, some archaeological digs that know that Stonehenge's history goes back even even further. And, and the interesting thing about prehistory is the older the monuments are, the more accurate and heavier the stones are in set. Well, isn't that the, what John West said, you know, when he was writing in Serpent in the Sky about Egypt? And he said it wasn't so much a development as a legacy, meaning the smartest greatest, most accurate, best stuff is the earliest, and then it degrades, it gets worse and worse and worse, which is exactly the opposite of people evolving an idea. It's the pattern of people inheriting an idea. Exactly, and that occurs in the in the British Isles with stone circles. If you look at the heaviest first phases of uh, each site, let's take Avebury for example. You've got the first phase of Avebury, the the heaviest stone weighing over a hundred tons, mm. was the first component of that site and then the stone circles got built around the 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 heaviest and more accurately placed stone settings so i i agree with uh with his work the the earlier ones are far far more accurate and then they they, they kind of got worse they, they mm-hmm. didn't get better entropy uh, sets in because if it's a if it's an inside knowledge in other words, the next question is how did these so-called primitive ancestors of humans know this stuff answer it was a heritage it was given to them it was part of their sacred tradition of who they were wherever they came from and more and more evidence indicates that some of them may have come from mars maria Mm -hmm. they brought this incredibly sophisticated hyperdimensional energy knowledge and how to use the earth itself as a long-term amplifier that required no power no wires no nothing just the stones arranged in the right geometry and they were off to the races Yes, and so when when we go back to these earlier phases, I think that they're the the most, uh, in terms of even of dowsing, of people's experiences, conscious experiences, the older the the monument, the stronger it is. And it also anchors in the energies because the lays, the the ley lines tend to focus on these earlier monuments and then afterwards when we look at a ley line we look at the kind of say one that was aligned on it 5,000 years ago and then those lines were used by other cultures like the Druids much much later and like the Bronze Age people much much later so we know that the very earliest sites they anchored in the lays as well when you say anchored describe that please 
what what I mean is that the, the these large stone settings aligned to these a celestial event mark where those energies are going so that they make a bit like what Roy Dutton said about the UFO corridor they're making a line of energy and it's been so they're kind of like anchoring uh, anchoring it or grounding it uh, geodetically with the planet itself yeah, a bit like an acu you know, like an acupuncture needle goes into a meridian line. No, I don't, but Robin does. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just an analogy. I mean, for example, it's it's about anchor. It's about creating a force field and pushing uh, a stone into uh, the energy system, and then you can direct it. It mm. is believed, and even in ancient China, they would say that you can start to direct energies by the placement of. Uh, stone settings or temple spaces. So I, th I think the whole system was laid out, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. Well, that's what Monk's work says. He's got data going back thousands of years. And what's interesting is that as the, as the technology for harnessing it or expressing it changed, going from sophisticated stone monuments to basically, you know, mud heap, a devolution of technology, the knowledge base was the same, the geometry was replicated the same, the materials to which the inhabitants tried to mimic this physics geometry, that's what got worse and worse and worse, devolved as the knowledge was lost. Yes, and that is exactly what happened over here. The massive sites like Stonehenge and Avebury are huge, and you could have thousands of people go into Avebury Henge. When you come to the later stone circles, they're much smaller, less sophisticated. Uh, so it is the 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 knowledge didn't carry on as well as in the earlier founding days of the ancient sites, and that's certainly the case in the British Isles. Okay, well, I want to have a, I want to pursue this energy thing because I just had another idea I want to bounce off you. But we're at the uh, top of the hour, so what we need to do is to take a slight pause. My guest this morning is Maria Wheatley, and we're talking about Stonehenge and the energies of these ancient circles, which are anything but passive. They appear to really be uh, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, they seem to be energizers on the landscape to remind us with the energies of what, in fact, uh, can happen when they're activated. Okay, we shall return. My guest, Marie Wheatley, you're on the other side of midnight. This, again, is uh, from my dad's favorite album, Victory at Sea. This is called The Theme of the Fast Carriers. Nothing like an aircraft carrier on a high sea. We shall return.
the other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. This is called appropriately Beneath the Southern Cross. I remember my dad saying the first time he saw the Southern Cross. for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. 
So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>